It is Monday, October 11th, and welcome to today's edition of 7 Investing Now. This is our show where we take a long-term investing perspective on today's most recent and interesting financial media stories. I'm 7 Investing founder and CEO, Simon Erickson, and oh my goodness, we have a good show for you here today. We're going to be chatting about a lot of exciting things, which will include the space economy, which will include special purpose acquisition companies, and which will include cryptocurrencies. But before we get to that, I'd like to introduce my partners in crime on the show here with me. We have Seven Investing Lead Advisor, Steve Symington. We have Seven Investing's Director of Marketing, Samantha Bailey. And at half past the hour, we're going to be joined by our partner, Spence Randall, from Crypto EQ to talk about cryptocurrencies. Uh, so we got a, a packed house. It's going to be a fun show. If you have anyone else whose name starts with the letter S would like to be on the show, feel free to invite them. Steve, let me start you. Before, before we get started, though, how are things up in Montana, my friend, and how was your weekend? Getting cold fast, but the weekend's great. It's perfect football weather, so that's what I did this weekend. But, yep, our Grizzlies keep winning. Fantastic news if you're a Grizzlies fan. Uh, Sam, down here in Texas, great news if you're a Texas A&M Aggies fan. Not as good of news if you're a Texas Longhorn, though. Saturday was the worst possible outcome for me. The Aggies beat Alabama. Texas lost to Oklahoma. I'm just in a state of depression trying to climb my way out. But <laughs> good. College sports dictating our moods as they always do, but there's always next week. Uh, Steve, let's get this rolling. Let's talk about the space economy first and foremost, because this yeah, is yeah. something that as investors, you and I have spent a lot of time digging into. Mm -hmm. uh, it used to be, if you were interested in outer space, you were either probably a Star Trek fan or you worked for NASA with a special security clearance. But we've been hearing a lot more about outer space in the financial media this year and last. Why is this so interesting to investors right now? Oh, man, it, it's it's kind of this exploding industry. And and, and funny enough, uh, the company that I worked for right out of college was founded because of a NASA grant. And we were doing feature extraction from uh, from far away, you know, pictures that were sent to us by NASA, huge images of the, the planets and such. So uh, super cool. But uh, it, it's come a long way since you know I graduated college. 15 years ago or however long it's been. Uh, so it, it's it's fun to watch because this it, it is literally a, a trillion dollar industry and there's a lot of different places uh, that investors can now make money. You know, when, when you're talking about, um, you know, the obvious place, your, your Virgin Galactics with space tourism, uh, you know, we're, we're looking at companies that are looking for deep space exploration, satellite internet, satellite launch, um, there's a lot of different ways, even cleaning up space junk, you know, to prevent them from uh, colliding with uh, certain satellite trajectories and stuff. There's a lot of different ways to play it. And uh, people are excited and, and rightly so. But it's hard to, I, I think, easier said than done to pick through and find what's really the most promising uh, space industry place. So. Yeah, absolutely, Steve. We've got a graphic that I really like. I would like to show, Sam, if you have that first one there on the declining costs of, of the launch into low Earth orbit, right? So on the y-axis, so you got the dollars per kilogram of, of launch costs. This is in uh, today's dollars, you know, based uh, on not not at the time dollars, but in today's dollars. And you see, that's not exactly a linear scale, right? You've got a, a big jump there between $20,000 and $500,000 per kilogram. If you look over there on the left-hand side, you know, let's go back about 50 years, 60 years, and you see kind of the Russian Soyuz missions, right? This is where they were bringing payloads to the international space stations. The size of those circles represents the total cost of the mission, sometimes $200 million or more. Uh, now they're actually offering to bring civilians to the ISS, which is kind of neat. Kind of in the middle there, if you see a lot of those medium launches in the 90s and 2000s, 
this is kind of NASA really, you know, progressing its Atlas and Delta missions. They're trying out new types of rockets. They're trying to push down the costs of space launch. And then the most interesting, Steve, uh, I think the most interesting data points are those two that are at the bottom right, if you see them. Mm -hmm. There's the uh, the medium launch of the, the Falcon 9. That's a SpaceX Falcon 9 in 2010. And then the Falcon Heavy just a couple of years later. Steve, now we're talking about these are kind of medium and heavy payloads that you can do in a ride share, but at less than $3,000 per kilogram. I mean, that's an order of magnitude you see there just in a couple of decades mm -hmm. for the space economy. I think that this is opening up a lot of opportunities for commercial businesses that might not have had access to outer space previously. Yeah. And and part of what's interesting to me about that chart is is how things kind of stagnated for the decades in between, right? And they just kind of kind of just putzed along. And now we're starting to see uh, some declining costs. And this is what's going to enable uh, a lot of the other industries and applications, right, is these declining costs. You have to get stuff to space in the first place. And that's kind of where we start is uh, is with these kind of launch platforms and, uh, and just getting things to space in the first place uh, in order to um, capitalize on the opportunities it creates and then later on you know we'll be seeing some companies you know that's why you see uh there's like the the arc uh space etf and people were kind of scratching their heads like why is deer in there why is netflix uh in there and they're saying well it'll they'll benefit from satellite connectivity once it kind of becomes more of a thing but uh yeah you got to get things up there in the first place and th that's the the key driver and I think that's the perfect segue to show our second chart. We came with a lot of graphics prepared for everyone watching today's show on video. Uh, for anyone who's just tuning in on a podcast, we're now showing the expectations of the commercial space economy, according to Morgan Stanley, and comparing the year 2016, uh, so about five years ago, to what they expect by 2040 on the right-hand side of this chart. And Steve, there's two that really stand out on that right-hand chart to me which is you see the giant, if, you, if you're following along on video, that giant $412 billion red of the pie chart is, is representing the internet. And then you also see a orange uh, slice of the 2040 chart that's consumer broadband. So between the two of those, that's a half a trillion dollars that's kind of dedicated to internet and broadband connectivity that didn't exist at all five years ago in space internet. Uh, thanks very much, Sam, for showing that. I think that the big the big takeaway for me is that there's expectations that there's going to be basically ubiquitous internet all over the place. And it's not just going to be for your home or the devices that are connected up to your personal routers and your personal networks. Uh, this is things like autonomous vehicles. This is things like the internet of things that you might be out and about mobile, sometimes in different countries or different locations of the world, but you need to be connected for those things to work. And really, rather than laying a whole lot of fiber cable everywhere, uh, which is incredibly expensive, there's an opportunity to get the cost down for telecommunications opportunities uh, from space-based internet. Any thoughts on that, Steve? I know that you've looked a lot at space internet in the last couple of years. Yeah, um, you know, part of the challenge as an investor is that uh, a lot of this is going to be ushered in by um, privately held companies like SpaceX, uh, which just last week, I think, uh, news crept out that it, it had secured essentially a hundred billion dollar valuation based on its latest fundraise. And, and uh, so, you know, you've got some big early first movers that are privately held and, uh, but you also have companies that are, are publicly traded like rocket lab 
that are, are kind of poised to secure a lot of this. And uh, you're going to have a lot of companies kind of launching their own constellations to provide the internet. Uh, and, you know, make no mistake, there is opportunity for um, a small number of companies to, to capitalize on demand for speed that fiber, can, you know, only fiber it currently can provide. Um, but it's... Uh, the, those companies are, are often very specialized or it, it's part of a larger business. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of the challenge is, is kind of picking out uh, from the weeds. And we actually have a comment from our very own Dan Klein, um, who was unavailable to host the show today. But he said, how do you sort a good company from a bad one when there's so little actual revenue and most, quote, financials are just projections? Uh, and that's the trick. Right. And, and it's a, a combination of looking at you know, their platform, looking at how differentiated it is and how likely it is that they're going to secure some of these key contracts. Government, uh, you noticed in those pie charts is a, a pretty big chunk still uh, of the overall uh, pie that's available for businesses to try and bid on and and, uh, and and win some of these early funds that will help them scale. Uh, but you have to look at the overall opportunity and their platforms and, and maybe uh, in some cases uh, their cash positions. Uh, what they've been able to raise and on what terms uh, that'll, you know, there's a lot of SPACs uh, in this space play. And we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, shortly here. Um, but looking at the terms um, with which they they raised the cash that they provided and how much of the business they gave away in the process to go public in some cases and um, what kind of dilution investors face. So there's a lot of different variables to look at. Um, but, you know, thankfully, uh, we have the luxury of doing that full time. Um, and doing nothing but uh, research all day, most of the time. Uh, so uh, it's, yeah, but for people with the time uh, or inclination, uh, there's there's a lot of opportunity to be had. And Steve, I want to double click. We'll get back to the SPACs in a minute, because I do want to touch on those in the middle of the program mm -hmm. here. But I know that, like you said, you have a background in this space, pun intended for everyone who's listening. Uh, but, you know, 15, 20 years ago, this was kind of an industry that was really primarily defense contractors working with NASA, really big budgets, contracts that are going on out there. Uh, now you're looking at the world of billionaire entrepreneurs, the, the Elon Musk's and the Richard Branson's and the Jeff Bezos's that are building companies and putting their life fortune uh, mm -hmm. to work on this. Is this a different opportunity than you saw 15 or 20 years ago? Or is it just one that's more affordable now for entrepreneurs? And what's I the think, role of government in this going forward? Yeah, I think that's it, it's absolutely uh, a different opportunity and different in a good way for individual investors. Right. One, uh, there's so many options and investing in general is much more accessible to everybody. But as space becomes more accessible, uh, it's most certainly a different opportunity. And and there were, uh, you know, very limited number you know, back in 2006 when I'm working on this stuff. Uh, you know, we had Digital Globe and GOI, I think, <laughs> which sort of ended up acquiring one another in weird mergers. And then uh, there's been a lot of consolidation in those spaces because it was uh, a few kind of key leaders in uh, satellite. And but there's really no option to invest in, in launch platforms. There was no option to invest in things like space tourism. Uh, and it was, yeah, all privately held huge government contracts. And, and uh, so it's there's so much more information and so many more options that, uh, you know, I'm almost giddy as an investor to be able to kind of dig into this. It really is interesting. And I'm going to spot you up with one more question that I'd like to answer first as I uh, prepare you for, for my off script question that I'm going to ask. But it's what what areas of, of the space economy are you particularly interested in? One that I'm really interested in myself is it seems like we've seen these larger and larger rockets, right? We've seen ride share and just these larger and larger payloads. 
uh, which yeah. may or may not work if you're a small business. You kind of mm -hmm. have to wait for your bus stop to get to where the bus is eventually going. Yeah. Uh, whereas now you can actually have a dedicated launch for an economic price point. And I think that might be opening up a lot of low Earth orbit specifically opportunities that aren't just geosynchronous at the same place all the time that matches mm -hmm. the Earth's spin. Uh, Steve, with everything you know about, about space, as we kind of finish up our first segment here, what, what particular... Uh, part of this of this segment are you interested about in the space economy i'd say the the kind of geek in me is is most excited about uh, things like space tourism because it's just so you know it captures your imagination uh it's it's a little more uh slow to develop uh, in part because of the risks right um but i you know i also love uh your your kind of launch platforms there's a few really great ways to to actually uh, capitalize on that um but right now, launch and uh, space tourism, things that'll kind of segue into uh, much bigger opportunities down the road, right? Launch is sort of the enabler of the entire space ecosystem. Um, and there's only a few publicly traded players that are really worth considering in our minds. And, and seven investing members kind of know that from uh, some of our recent research and uh, and in space tourism, obviously, you know, there's... There's only one uh, decent way, you know, Virgin Galactic uh, publicly traded that you can actually invest in this space. Uh, and we've seen, you know, hiccups and extraordinary volatility. So you really have to have a stomach uh, to invest in some of these really, really early stage plays um, for volatility. You need to, to be able to uh, to handle uh, wide swings in share price as these industries kind of play out, because make no mistake, we are in the earliest stages uh, of development for these. And, and this is something that's going to play out uh, for a lot of these companies over the course of the next decade, decade and a half. And that's when we really start to see some meaningful scale and hopefully cash flows and, uh, and profits that kind of follow that way. Absolutely. You have to have a stomach for the volatility. You also have to have a stomach for the zero gravity. Samantha Bailey, <laughs> let me use that as a segue to you. What's the right price that you would get on the Virgin Galactic space tourism flight? Ooh, is it my own money? Yes, paying your own money for the flight. Fifty thousand dollars. Fifty thousand. Okay, fifty. Steve, Steve, what are you getting on the Virgin Galactic flight? How much do you have to get this down? I, to? I would. Uh, yeah, I'd start scratching my head about that point, and and that's you know one of those interesting things is over the next several years, there's charts in their initial public filings where they say that's the goal, right? Right now, it's a four hundred fifty thousand dollar ticket. Uh, if you want to go on something like you know SpaceX's orbital three you know three day tours, you've got to go through a six month training, and it's like fifty five million dollars unless you win it in a sweepstakes. Um, which, you know, interestingly enough is, is, was the cost of some of the earliest missions just to bring a, a couple, you know, reasonably, uh, large size payloads to space in the first place. But, uh, to think that you can bring a person to orbit, um, you know, for that is, is really interesting, but the goal is as they scale, it'll become more affordable. So kind of fun to watch. Absolutely. Keep, keep the questions coming in. If you have any questions you'd like to ask us, we'll take all the comments, but Sam, let's, before we segue into our next section to talk about SPACs. Like Steve just mentioned, uh, you, you wanted to say a couple of things about Seven Investing. If anyone's unfamiliar with our site, what can you tell us? Tell them about our business. Well, the thing I love most about our business is that we offer something for every type of investor. You know, I, I went to business school. I thought I had a good understanding of financial statements, but even you know, with an MBA, I've realized the depth of knowledge on this team. Maybe I should go back to business school because you guys have a much better handle on this than, than I ever did. But I appreciate the amount of time that goes into these reports. And I'm busy. I don't have time to, you know, crawl through these financial statements. And I just pick, you know, the companies each month that I like best. And I have a much more diversified portfolio that is performing 
much better than it did before I started working here. So that's what I love most about seven investing. I do think we crunched the numbers, Sam. We said that when you when you spread out the number of hours our entire team was putting in, and then to, you know took into account forty nine dollars a month to sign up. I believe it was less than five cents per hour per advisor for our time. Uh, that seems like a pretty good ROI on your money, if you ask me. Pretty good deal. Okay, and where can we so. find out more about Seven Investing? Where's a good way that we can subscribe? You can go to seveninvesting.com slash subscribe. And I'm normally not talking and pulling that up. There we go. You can go to seveninvesting.com slash subscribe and join and get everyone's information for less than five cents an hour, which is a good deal. Thanks very much, Sam. We've got some comments coming in here. One from Silver Trap here. Steve says $50,000. Uh, Seven Investing must be paying its employees really well. Hey, Steve, have we given you $50,000 for this flight yet? I feel like we can do a, a future podcast and get some ROI out of it. Well, we'll keep in mind that uh, by the time uh, I think their prices are $50,000 to go to space, uh, I'll probably be near retirement. So there'll be something where we've got some money. Uh, it, it's going to be a while before it's $50,000. So uh, make no mistake. They've got a heck of a backlog to work through. That's before they even opened up ticket sales. So we've got years yet uh, to save up that cash if we so choose. Very true, very true. Dago also had a comment too here. Says that he, would, he or she would rather spend that fifty thousand dollars to fly around the U.S. and, and eat at all the best restaurants. How about that, Sam? Is that a, is that a? Would you still take the space flight if you could actually go around the U.S. for fifty thousand? I'd probably go around the U.S. <laughs> compelling. For 50, you can hit a lot of nice restaurants for fifty thousand dollars. And I don't really have fifty thousand dollars to spend, Silver Trap. So, you know. Might be able Absolutely. to go around and then the US one final cheaper. one from Silver Trap as we finish up this part of the program saying I picked up Simon's recommendation in this space and I've been averaging it uh, all the way up. I'm very I'm I'm most excited about this company. Okay, thank thank you, Silver Trap, for not revealing the name of the recommendation as we always just provide that only for our subscribers. But I'm really glad to hear that you got in on uh, one of our recommendations. It's in this space. Uh, so Steve, mm -hmm. let's segue. Let's talk about the second part of today's program, not space, but SPACs which is, of course, the special purpose acquisition companies. Uh, this is a kind of a, a way of raising money for companies that's really kind of disrupting the traditional IPO. What is a SPAC and what do we need to know about this? All right. SPAC is a remove the E from space. It is all caps. <laughs> this is an acronym. It's SPAC, Special Purpose Acquisition Company. So uh, these are... Um, a way that companies have been using uh, to a slightly simpler way to go public and uh, kind of an alternative to either a direct listing or traditional IPO. And uh, it, it's a great way for them to raise capital. And uh, generally they find um, a, a privately held company finds a, a sponsor a spec merger vehicle, right? That is essentially a shell company that they can merge with and in doing so, become a publicly traded company. They change their ticker, uh, usually from uh, the SPAC merger vehicle after the merger is complete. And uh, voila, you have a, uh, a publicly traded company. And um, so, yeah, uh, SPACs are, are, they've kind of exploded uh, onto the scene in the last few years, even though they've been around for I mean, quite a while. Uh, what were they created? Something like 20 years ago. But uh, just the last couple of years, uh, companies have realized this is a potentially attractive way and a relatively simpler, uh, low cost way for them to uh, go public and raise capital. So, uh, yeah, really interesting. And there are a bunch of uh, SPACs on the seven investing scorecard um, for what it's worth that uh, that we believe have uh, really interesting promise. So 
It really is interesting, Steve. Like, like it, the the way that it's disrupting in many ways that traditional IPOs. You don't have an underwriter, right? The traditional way of doing an IPO is you have an underwriter that buys your shares at a certain price, and then they release them for trading at a much much higher price on the first day of trading. There's always that IPO pop. We've gotten so used to seeing shares pop 70, 80, 100 percent on the very first day of trading. That's money left on the table if you're the business that's raising that money. Mm -hmm. And so the SPAC in many ways has been a more efficient way to put capital back into the business, right? You have a financial shell company, they go, they raise a lot of money from investors and also from other companies. And then they inject that directly into the equity of a privately held company and then bring it to be publicly traded on the financial markets. Uh, so Steve, there's a lot of interest in SPACs. We could bring this conversation a bunch of different ways, but we're gonna do this football, football style where I'm going to be Al Michaels and I'm just going to talk about the terminology and kind of make sure that everyone's aware of what we're looking at in the fine print. And then you're going to be uh, the Chris Collinsworth that's going to get into the nitty gritty of a company and kind of talk about how we size this up. And Steve, we had a lot of options, but we actually went with Lucid Motors. Uh, yeah. Click on that now, LCID. This is a company that recently went uh, through the SPAC transaction process a few months ago. Tell us about Lucid and, and what this company does. Lucid is, uh, they're interesting, right? And and it's funny because I, I see, I saw a note from Bank of America recently that called Lucid the Tesla of startups in the EV space. I'm like, wait, isn't Tesla the Tesla of startups in the EV space? But uh, EVs, electric vehicles. Um, but uh, Lucid recently uh, completed its SPAC merger, I think in July with Churchill Capital. And um, they raised four and a half billion dollars in the process. And, uh, you know, we're looking at the first deliveries of their Lucid Air vehicle. Prices start for that, I think, around $77,000. Numbers check out. I like those sevens. Uh, but deliveries are starting uh, before the end of this month. And uh, I, I think they were they're projecting maybe 20,000 deliveries uh, or so before the end of this year, assuming they can uh, ramp pretty quickly, uh, according to their initial um, kind of investor presentations. But uh, it's interesting because this this seventy seven thousand dollar vehicle actually came out and exceeded even the range of Tesla's longest range vehicles. Uh, Five hundred twenty miles between charges for the Lucid Air. Uh, it's a gorgeous vehicle, and they have plans for a pickup and and uh, you know a yet to be named sedan and uh, some other an SUV I believe that they have out there. Um, so that's. Uh, it's something that people are very excited about. But, you know, I think the challenge here is that uh, they're kind of following the Tesla playbook and launching some vehicles that are very expensive, gorgeous vehicles. Uh, and you might argue that even Tesla's kind of premium uh, vehicles have kind of suffered from uh, uh, maybe a lack of innovation visually. Like people wonder like, OK, it still looks a lot like the, the premium vehicles that Tesla released a decade ago. Um, so there could be some refresh and, uh, the challenge here is can they, uh, ramp sales to the extent that they are projecting, um, while Tesla's premium vehicle sales have stagnated, right? Because Tesla is now focusing on their model threes and potentially something like a model two, uh, that would be even cheaper. Uh, and that's the plan start expensive, kind of scale down and ramp production in the process. So, uh, that's the challenge is, is, uh, can they meet their kind of lofty growth projections and, and, uh, it, but it's a really interesting company with a beautiful product that's been well-reviewed and, and crazy range. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of kind of the basics of what you need to know about Lucid for now. Sam, let's put up another chart for everyone watching live here on the video screen. Mm -hmm. Steve said some lofty projections. Let's see what that actually means. We're talking about the forecast we see out there. So, Steve, that's what you mentioned on the far left, right? The average selling price yep. 
of the air is $77,000. That's definitely the high end of this market. That's an expensive vehicle, but you kind of see a hockey stick of growth there, right? From what is that? 20,000 expected deliveries next year. Right. To, uh, what, what are we talking? 12, 13 times that just four years from now. I assume that's what you're saying is kind of a lofty for a forecast or expectations for investors. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, I think the trick is, uh, you look at some of the, the most kind of grandiose projections from analysts on wall street, like that, then bank of America note, uh, I, I noticed, uh, just recently, you know, they slapped a $30 price target on it. They said that was based on EV sales of like uh, enterprise value to sales of about 3x and uh, enterprise value to EBIT of about 37x or 2025 estimates is is kind of how they came to that $30 price target. Um, but that's a premium to Tesla's early trading multiples uh, and to the average multiples of, of kind of peers in the electric vehicle space. But, uh, you know, looking on a, a forward uh five-year basis you know it's it's actually a discount to what tesla's traded at recently because you know you're looking at uh what what's their market cap now for lucid it was something like 36 billion 37 billion yep exactly yeah. mm -hmm. okay so it seems like uh you know it's kind of a, a a lofty business but you also look at tesla uh which is trading at about a 780 almost 800 billion dollar valuation uh albeit with some additional optionality which is something that lucid doesn't really have right because tesla's goal is to kind of wean the world off of fossil fuels and and uh you know kind of be a leader in the solar and energy storage with their battery technology uh and electric vehicle space so um you know there's a, a heck of a premium that people are placing on tesla's business but tesla also has that first mover advantage and they've really begun to ramp their manufacturing in earnest and um you know, Lucid is so much earlier stage. Uh, you can't help but wonder uh, whether this is something where, um, you know, those are some lofty projections for a business that hasn't even delivered its first vehicle yet. That's what I want to double click on here a little bit, Steve, is, is we know that this is a big opportunity. Uh, I think it's generally agreed upon that electric vehicles has a large addressable market potential. Mm -hmm. uh, we all know that Tesla has gone and done very well for itself and its investors. And so it seems like you said the Tesla playbook is can we recreate that at a premium price point? Uh, now I actually want to go into a little bit into the trenches and look at kind of what we look at with the transaction details of a SPAC like this. And uh, apologies if anyone's eyes glaze over when they're looking at this with me, but I do promise it's important because as an investor, you want to make sure you know not only about the company itself, but also the valuation. And that's a little different for SPACs. Sam, can we put up the transaction details? Ah, perfect. Here we are. So you're typically when you see a SPAC uh, that's going to do a SPAC merger like Steve just described that Lucid did, issue something like this in an investor presentation. It shows where they're raising capital. You see on the left-hand side there that Lucid raised $4.5 billion from the cash that it put into that SPAC piggy bank, the, uh, the uh, financial shell company, and then also the uh, the investment from um, uh, private investors as well, private investment and public equity proceeds as well. $4.5 billion is a lot of money, Steve, and an overall valuation of $16.7 billion at the valuation. Yeah. The first thing I want to point out to investors to look at is that is that 16.7, the total, the total valuation and the raising of funds that you're putting it for a, for a merger like this. Uh, when you see something like that coming out really hot, that is so heavily weighted in future years, uh, you almost have to count on the company performing exceptionally well. 
any hiccups on the production schedule or the deadlines that they've announced publicly uh, or personnel or anything that's going any way not according to plan is going to put a company like this, it's very frothy valuation uh, at risk of, of being very volatile because there's a lot of expectations baked in, especially when you have a very high implied market capitalization. Um, but there's one other thing that I want to I want to look at here before we we kind of talk a little bit more about this company in general, and that's the subnotes at the very bottom right. Um, you you might see subnote number five there that's talking about the 17.3 million shares held by the sponsor that are subject uh, to earn back, and then there's further dilution as well. And there's 41 million shares from public warrants and 43 million shares from founder warrants. Warrants are dilutive to equity holders. It's like cutting a pizza from four, that was four pieces previously into five or six pieces. We all have a smaller piece of the overall pie. And many times when you have a SPAC transaction like this, there are warrants that are earmarking more shares to be issued at a later date, uh, either to the sponsors themselves, who are the financiers uh, that are doing this transaction, or to the actual existing shareholders themselves too. And so, Steve, when you see something like that, which together, uh, this really accounted for about 5% of the overall valuation of today's uh, much higher market cap, um, that's, that's one, pretty significant dilution. Uh, two, a lot of that is going to the sponsor's dilution. Yep. And then three, a lot of that is actually going back to the existing shareholders uh, in something called the sponsor promote and then the earnouts over time. Maybe we don't want to get too, too, too into those trenches right now. But I think my overall takeaway for investors is you got to be aware of how much your share is going to be diluted from future warrants in a SPAC transaction in the future. Right. And and one of the things we noticed, you know, we were kind of digging in uh, just before the show uh, to kind of familiarize ourselves with the terms of this transaction. And you're like, that was one of the first things you're like, no wonder this is buried on page 65 of their <laughs> investor presentation. Right. And it's like sub bullet five on that that spec, you know, transaction details. They don't you know want to be like, here's all the dilution you guys are going to face. Steve, Sam um, pays me five cents an hour to find those details. For you. Yeah. <laughs> so the the other thing I guess you know to keep in mind is you know they they forced early dilution of the public warrant uh, aspect of that transaction. So uh, some of that's already kind of been accounted for, uh, which is all right. We ripped off one band aid, uh, but there is additional dilution that investors are going to face, uh, which will put a lid on some of the the near term returns over the next couple of years. Um, but yeah, it, it's uh, it, it's an interesting business. Uh, but like you said, any any hiccups in their growth. Trajectory, uh, if they don't live up to investors, um, you know what they've kind of promised uh, as far as vehicle deliveries. Uh, you know, if sales kind of take off, especially as some of the the legacy auto manufacturers kind of step into this space as well in the next couple of years, they're, they're making some heavy investments to ramp their own EV sales. Uh, it, it's going to be one of those things where it, it could be quite volatile. And um, but you know, if they do deliver. Uh, it could also be uh, potentially lucrative for early investors today. So uh, kind of two sides of that coin, something to keep in mind with every SPAC transaction. Uh, you know, take some of their projections with a grain of salt and, uh, and, and keep that in mind when you're looking at the valuations that you're buying in. Okay, Steve. So which side of the coin are you on here? $37 billion valuation, but of course, a lot of opportunity for electric vehicles. You buy and lucid at today's market cap? Maybe, a, you know, if anything, a small starter position to, to force myself to watch it. You know, we've also got Rivian coming on the market and they've got an $80 billion valuation with a big fat zero on the revenue uh, line. So, um, 
you know, they, so, you know, there's, there's some potential in it, but I do think uh, there, there's some frothy valuations. I'm not going all in uh, just yet, but uh, potentially start a position to watch it. But. Absolutely. Comment from Ravi Shah here uh, in the comment section saying he's starting to see some lucid vehicles on the road in the Bay area, San Francisco. He's test vehicles. I assume. See if I think that they've, they've started some production, maybe some deliveries were starting either this month or next month, but man, again, 37 million billion dollars, excuse me. Um, uh, you're going to have to see a real quick ramp up to justify that, I think. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Most definitely. Yep. Okay, Sam, now before we go to our final topic, we're going to actually bring in a, uh, a third guest for this conversation. But let's chat a little bit more about 7investing. For anyone who's just joining the program today, uh, we, we talked about uh, you know what you've learned from 7investing and how this has benefited you. Uh, what is some of the other feedback we've heard from some of our subscribers or people who have tuned into our podcast? Anything that stands out that you're hearing externally out there about 7investing? The one thing I love about working at Seven Investing in the you know in the marketing department because we really don't get anything negative sent our way. Everyone loves our service, and it's very easy to you know handle the communication side of this when you know our subscribers love our product. But I think it's just hearing how you know the recommendations have empowered our subscribers to invest in their futures. You know, we heard about people that were sending their kids to college, buying a new home. You know, these recommendations have helped people, you know, kind of change their lives and better their lives. And I love hearing those stories. It, it makes everything so worthwhile. Your testimonials Great. are pretty awesome. You said going to college, we actually have a student special rate, right? What is the details about that? So if you are a student and you have a .edu email address, it's easy and you can subscribe on the site. And if you don't, you can email info at 7investing. And that is Steve. And you and Steve could talk about, you know, the details of your degree and where you're going to school. And we have a special rate for you at only $84 a year. So I don't even know what the math is at five cents an hour per advisor, but it's much less if you're paying the student rate. Less than a penny. That's full access to the entire site, right? That's not just the a special site. segment for students. Yeah. It's the entire site. Fantastic. Well, we're really excited for everybody to join. Like we said, $49 a month. We also have the special $84 a year rate for any students. Uh, that might be, in my opinion, one of the best deals on the internet out there. Uh, we're going to bring in another guest, actually. We hopefully have Spence Randall, who's able to join the program here with us as well. Uh, Spence, thanks for joining. Spence is uh, with our partner organization, Crypto EQ. Spence, tell us first a little bit about what your organization does and what you would like to Crypto EQ to become. Hey, thanks for having me on, Simon. And uh, I just want to back up uh, what Sam's saying there, that you know all the folks that come to our community from 7investing, echo exactly what she said you know it's one thing to hear it from seven investing itself but it's another thing to hear you know in other communities like ours uh, people really do see a good value in the membership and the subscription and learning about you know stocks and equities alongside you guys so uh just want to echo sam's comments there it's a pleasure to be here you know i think of, of what we're doing at crypto eq is similar to seven investing's mission except for cryptocurrency and digital assets so the way uh, Seven Investing approaches um, equities and takes this long-term view, this long-term perspective. At Crypto EQ, we do fundamental research for things like Bitcoin. Um, so we take deep dives into this really complicated, complex, noisy asset class that is digital assets. And you know, we own that. We know that it's, it's messy. Uh, and so we go through our core rating framework. Um, we run signals. Uh, we do a number of things for our users and customers to provide you know, research and market insights for cryptos. Um, so we boil it all down and try to make it as simple as we can. Um, and it's a pleasure to be here. 
Well, we're really excited to have you too, Spence. We're really excited to partner with CryptoEQ too. I've read several of your reports. They're very, very thorough. That's why I wanted to work with you in the very first place. Uh, what are the collision course conversations that we have every month? I think I've heard a thing or two about those before. What do we do when we chat about those? Yeah, so the collision course is a monthly cadence we've got going. Uh, Steve's been on a number of times. Simon anchors it. We've had other uh, lead advisors from 7investing join us as well as as well, from the crypto EQ side, we have a number of folks that join in and on those conversations. The collision course is designed to tackle the overlap between this messy asset class and digital assets and uh, the work that y'all are doing in equities. And so as uh, crypto has matured and digital assets have matured, we've seen companies like Coinbase go public. We've seen a number of other uh, publicly traded companies add a crypto element to what they do, right? So the PayPal's, the Squares, um, et cetera, et cetera. These, these publicly traded companies that are stepping into crypto in a big way, we talk about new developments um, from both sides of the coin. We look at it from the equity side, we look at it from the digital asset side and uh, evaluate uh, what's happening in the market together. Um, so that's something that we do on a monthly cadence. Uh, we complement the um, video content that 7investing produces with a newsletter at CryptoEQ. So if you subscribe to CryptoEQ, you can have those takeaways every month uh, right in your inbox. Fantastic. Yeah, exactly, Spence. Like you said, we, we factor in both sides of the Bitcoin in those discussions. Uh, we don't want to reveal everything that we talk about. We keep that behind uh, for, our, for our paying subscribers. But I do want to give everybody on the show a chance to chat with you live, Spence, about what questions they have about cryptocurrencies. And so please feel free to, to chime in with comments, questions for Spence. You can ask anything you want to with the cryptocurrency expert here. We, we're kind of excited about this opportunity. But kind of to key up the conversation, Spence, I do have a couple talking points that I wanted to, to chat about. Uh, the first is we've been hearing a lot about El Salvador these past couple of months because they just made Bitcoin legal tender in the country. What does that mean and why is it important? Yeah, it's a very, very important fundamental development. And we've seen these different arcs of adoption. We had the very, very early technologists you know, learning about crypto. We had the early investors. We had the early uh, companies uh, that allocated to crypto and held it on their balance sheet. And now we have nations uh, jumping into uh, this asset class in a big way. Uh, so this has been an ongoing story. We've covered it um, at the collision course. El Salvador made Bitcoin legal tender by law several months ago. Um, and this most recent development is their Chivo wallet going live. So this is a, a, an app developed by the El Salvadorian government. Uh, that is designed to give every citizen of El Salvador a bank account through Bitcoin. So you've noticed that uh, as it's it's rolled out, more users have adopted the Chivo wallet than have bank accounts in El Salvador. That's a really, really important um, fundamental metric. This this is data reported by El Salvador's government. Uh, so the, the early data is showing that you know, in that sense, it's achieving its goal of banking the unbanked El Salvadorian citizens you know, now they can can manage their assets in a Bitcoin Chivo wallet. Um, so I would say, you know, stepping back and looking at it, um, a, a really good fundamental success there uh, with Bitcoin, uh, you know, banking the unbanked. It really is interesting, especially considering El Salvador, about a quarter of GDP is from remittance. People working elsewhere, sending money back home. Of course, those fees can get very, very high very quickly. 
Bitcoin cryptocurrency is certainly a way to avoid a lot of that. Steve, what's your take on this story? El Salvador adopting it as the first, kind of putting the uh, the flag on the ground saying, hey, we were here first and did this. Uh, what is this going to be a domino that, that falls or other dominoes will fall from this story and other countries will also catch on? I think it's a fantastic first step. And, and we've also recently seen, I, I think just uh, last week, we were talking about how Brazil introduced some legislation to potentially follow suit and make Bitcoin one of its... Uh, uh, official currencies. So uh, I do think we see this happen with, um, you know, a, a lot of countries uh, whose currency uh, is either absent, right? They rely on something like the U.S. dollar as their primary currency, uh, or, you know, they, they've struggled with things like hyperinflation. And, and uh, yeah, I think uh, in um, it's particularly encouraging when you see uh, large populations of unbanked uh, people in these countries like El Salvador, uh, Spence mentioned that more people have adopted uh, that wallet, uh, the the crypto, the, the Chivo wallet, uh, than have bank accounts in the country anyway. And this is over the course of just a couple of months. So uh, really, really impressive. Uh, very, very rapid adoption. And uh, I, I think you're going to see a lot of uh, not only countries, but uh, uh, companies kind of embracing crypto as a result, as, as you see uh, kind of this this sort of uh, first domino fall, most certainly. Absolutely. At the end of the program today, I'm going to ask each of you for one company that's <clears throat> on your radar that might benefit that is that has got uh, cryptocurrency exposure. We'll get to that in a minute, but I do want to actually point out the other side of the Bitcoin on this story, which is China, Spence. I, I have to ask you about China because China's central bank has declared all Bitcoin mining and any transactions using Bitcoin are illegal financial activities. Man, that's a completely bearish statement that's totally offsetting El Salvador's stance. How important is China for the future adoption of Bitcoin and what's going on over there? My one liner would be Bitcoin and digital assets happen with or without China. Uh, so that, that's my one liner. And we've watched um, China ban um, aspects of this ecosystem time and time again uh, since Bitcoin's inception. And I think uh, especially with the seven investing audience being you know, well versed in tech stocks, We've seen uh, China take a, an approach uh, that's closed to uh, you know innovative ecosystems like Bitcoin, right? So we've seen them. We've seen China develop a number of things internally. Uh, it's almost like a Chinese version of you know fill in the blank. Um, and so with Bitcoin, uh, by design, it's an open permissionless system, and that just is philosophically at odds with uh, the way the Chinese government approaches um, you know, leading their country. So, um, you know, it's no surprise that they've banned different aspects of the ecosystem time and time again. Um, and the Bitcoin uh, network marches on. Um, and actually, uh, a lot of uh, places in the United States, like Texas, for example, um, can now flourish in the mining ecosystem uh, with all of these um, miners getting pushed out of mainland China. Uh, so those miners will find a home. Um, and a lot of them are finding a home here in places like Texas, where renewable energy is plentiful. And uh, the cost of power uh, can be sufficiently low, uh, and they can they can run a profitable mining uh, operation. Great point, Spence. The migration of the miners and where in the world those actually are could play a, a, a factor in this story. Steve, what's your take on China? I mean, we've talked about this a little bit in recent weeks, right? Um, <laughs> the, my my first take is is to uh, potentially view it as as. I guess the first thing that pops into my head is maybe the fastest way to accelerate adoption of something is to restrict it. And uh, we've seen that a few times with things that, that China has attempted to kind of spurn 
uh, they've ended up spurring it in the, the process. But uh, um, yeah, that that's uh, uh, I agree with Spence. It's it's something that's going to happen with or without China. And uh, I, I think they will be forced to kind of reconsider their stance in the process uh, as the rest of the world kind of uh, uh, embraces its adoption of cryptocurrencies. Perfect. I can add a layer here too. Is a follow-up point. Steve, Steve gets me thinking. Um, so, so if you if you if you play this out, the Chinese um, want to have a, a CBDC, right? A, you know, a central uh, digital currency controlled by um, the Chinese government. So, you know, Bitcoin is a threat to that. Stable coins are a threat to that. An open crypto ecosystem is a threat to that. So, their answer will be, uh, I'm sure, a closed CBDC, a closed centrally. Uh, backed uh, coin by the Chinese government. Um, and so I think they're setting up for that to flourish in years to come within their, their closed ecosystem. Absolutely, Spence. I'm going to come right back to you on this question as we wrap up today's program. Bank of America just put out a 250-page report <clears throat> saying that Bitcoin is in the first inning of basically a long-term growth story. That's an institution, one of America's largest financial banks, saying that they are very bullish on Bitcoin, and they named a whole bunch of companies that they think might benefit from the exposure to cryptocurrencies. Spence, what is one company on your radar that you think might benefit from exposure to crypto? So, like a, a company that um, you know is publicly traded but uh, has not yet made moves in, into the crypto industry. Is that yes? And it doesn't have to be a conviction buy. Just something you see that's a company that's interested in crypto or might be ahead of the curve on crypto. It's on your radar that we should maybe be taking a closer look at as investors. I'll, I'll add a, a theme, not not one specific company, but a theme. So uh, here in, you know, if you got your boots on the ground in Texas, uh, what you're seeing, we just had the Texas Blockchain Summit led by the Texas Blockchain Council. You're seeing a, a resurgence of fervor around Bitcoin and things like it. Um, and the momentum is unlike anything I've ever seen in person here. Um, and one of the things that's driving it, a big catalyst is oil and gas companies waking up to the opportunity that exists in Bitcoin mining, um, specifically uh, this this idea that stranded energy or waste energy um, that you have on site at these different energy sites, uh, you know, as a, an untapped resource, if you ship out these containers that are designed to mine Bitcoin and you deploy them to these sites, you can harness that energy that otherwise would have been waste. Um, and turn it into Bitcoin. And so uh, a lot of oil and gas companies here are waking up to this, are moving into this space. Uh, so I, I think that's something, a theme that's very strong that, that deserves attention uh, would be oil and gas companies and Bitcoin mining and the overlap there and who's moving early. Um, so that, that'd be my, my hot take. Okay, good theme, Spence, but I want specifics. In fact, let me, let me change the question for you because I know you look at cryptocurrencies specifically. Which cryptocurrency has the largest overall market capitalization one decade from now? Ooh. It's Bitcoin by a long mile today. Is it still Bitcoin 10 years from now? Yeah, I think um, I'd say uh, my answer would have to be Bitcoin today um, because Bitcoin is the only asset I see that has closed the door on its competition. Uh, you know, it, within the use case of store value, I feel like Bitcoin has nothing but open runway and that, you know, it can only get in its own way. Um, within the smart contracts use case, I'd say that that is a, um, there's a, a tremendous amount of potential there. Ethereum is the market leader, but we need some more time before I could say that Ethereum has closed the door on its competition in that regard. So that I think that Bitcoin and Ethereum are the only 
assets that could be in that conversation as an answer to that question. And today for me, it's Bitcoin. Fantastic. Now, Sam Bailey, don't think for a second that I was about to let you slide on this question as well. I wanted to ask your thoughts on cryptocurrencies and also a company that is on your radar that you think might be a way to invest in this. So remember, I focus more on the equity side, unlike the three of you here. Just kidding. But I'm going to go with AMD. And I know that's kind of a little bit of an off the wall answer, but bear with me. They you know, are the leading designer of GPUs. And that is going to be so intensive in the creation of crypto assets that I think that they're you know, someone to watch in this space, even though they're not directly associated with crypto. AMD is one of my largest positions. So I, you know, I, I know about that a little bit. <laughs> and thoughts on crypto, Sam, any thoughts on what's going on with, with the volatility of Bitcoin and El Salvador and China and everything? I'm not just saying this because Spence is here. I am a happy paying member of Crypto EQ and I was not, you know, a crypto bull a year ago, but I've become one. And I think that this is an area to watch for sure. I love the, you know, the marriage between crypto and equities, and I enjoy everything that Crypto EQ puts out. Absolutely. Thanks very much, Sam. Steve, let me come to you. What's the company that's on your radar? Well, how about I take the other side of the, the chip coin and I go with NVIDIA? Um, you know, I, I'll cheat a little bit. We, we did talk about this uh, a little on our podcast, but uh, that's a company I've owned since 2009. And uh, yeah, NVIDIA, you know, that that's like AMD. It's one of those companies that uh, its needle is being moved. Uh, by cryptocurrency mining chips, and they even uh, had to to go to uh, great lengths to design a specific chip for cryptocurrency mining. Uh, sans display outputs, and they have the hash rates on some of their existing uh, gaming GPUs to make them less attractive to uh, cryptocurrency miners so that they could actually keep some of their gaming GPUs in the hands of actual gamers. Um, so they've, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in sales per quarter uh, for GPU chips. And uh, that's not going to change anytime soon, even if it does ebb and flow uh, with the price of certain cryptocurrencies, namely Bitcoin. Uh, but yeah, uh, that's that's something that uh, that won't change as people continue to mine uh, for cryptocurrency. Fantastic. I like the take. Both of the chip makers, AMD, who's got the totally customizable group from Xilinx, and then NVIDIA, like you said, Steve, just more and more efficient for mining the chips. Great, great ideas there. I'm going to go with Square as my company that I think we should be watching. We, we saw Square make a $297 million acquisition of Tidal several months ago. Really wants to be the innovator in the intellectual property of non-fungible tokens, NFTs, right? This is something that's grabbing the world by, this, by storm. Uh, it's recreating the music industry. And I think that Square is really trying to build out this larger and larger and broader and broader ecosystem uh, that Cash App, where not only you can you can trade NFTs, you can buy and sell Bitcoin. Uh, it's really trying to get the acquisition costs of that as low as possible. I think that Square has shown the ability to do that for several years. And this is another advantage that it's going to recognize as cryptocurrency uh, continues to gain adoption. Okay, great. So look, keep an eye on oil and gas, uh, blockchains in the oil and gas industry on AMD. Tick on that is AMD, NVIDIA is NVDA, and then Square is SQ. A special thanks to Spence Randall. Spence, thanks for joining us on today's episode of 7investing now. Thank you for having me. I always like these live streams. And Steve and Sam, it was a real pleasure to have you here as well. Thanks, man. Thank you for having me. And thanks to everybody for tuning in. It's kind of a fun show. We talked about a lot. We talked about space economy. We talked about um, uh, blockchains and cryptocurrencies. And then we also talked about SPAC. It was a fast-paced show. I hope that you enjoyed it. And tune in next time as we find more of the most innovative things taking place in the market, a long-term investing angle on them. 
So we're here to empower you to invest in your future. We are 7 Investing. Have a great day and we'll see you next time. People on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.